It's important to to make know that uh, we are not uh, agree with the government with this politic and uh, the decisions it takes. Welcome to Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Jacob Goldstein. Today is Tuesday, October 11th, and that was Nathalie Edouard you heard at the top. She and thousands of other French union workers are protesting government cost-cutting measures. Today on the podcast, we take out our crystal ball. We peer into the next 20 years and try and figure out, can economics help us solve the problem of global warming? We have that conversation with what I think it's safe to say is the world's most influential thinker on energy issues, Daniel Jurgen. But before all that, our Planet Money Indicator with our very own Jacob Goldstein. What do you got for us? Today's Planet Money Indicator, 5.4 million. The population of Slovakia is 5.4 million. Did someone buy you a book of facts and you're just going to open it <laughs> randomly? Yes, this is a random Planet Money Indicator, but its very randomness is why it's such a big deal. Today, the fate of Europe's economy, dare I say it, the fate of the world hangs on those 5.4 million people. Slovakia's parliament is voting today on whether to expand Europe's bailout fund. And as of right now, every other country that uses the euro, that, that's more than 98% of the population of the eurozone, they have already approved this bailout fund expansion. But the way the euro works is every single country has to approve this before it can take effect. And so this fact, the fact that Europe and the world is all hanging on what Slovakia does, the fact that right now, just before we came in here, there's a, a link on the Wall Street Journal's homepage saying that they are live blogging the parliamentary debate in Slovakia. This points to this huge, huge problem that really is at the root of a lot of the European debt crisis, which is there is not any real central authority to take the kind of big dramatic dramatic actions they need to end this crisis. It is crazy. This must be the highest point of attention the Slovakian parliament <laughs> has ever or will it's ever a big receive. big moment, Slovakia. Make that speech today, you know. Yeah. And we've already gone through this with Malta, right. Estonia, Malta yesterday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Su such massive global powers. Yeah. So this is like the entire U.S. economy revolves on what what would be a comparable size state like Wisconsin? Yeah, Wisconsin. And and remember, 49 other states in our in our imaginary world, they've already approved it. You know, it's not like it's, oh, it's 50-50 and Wisconsin's going to break the tie. It's like 98% of the population has already said, yes, let's do this. Oh, but wait, we got to see if Wisconsin, you know, is going to jump in. Yeah, and we in the U.S. have this amending the Constitution process, which was designed to be an incredibly difficult high bar, something we've only achieved a few dozen times in our entire history. And it's way easier. Much, than... much easier. And, you know, this is a huge problem for Europe right now because this debt crisis, which becomes a financial crisis, it moves very fast, right? So, so yes, Slovakia will probably today or this week approve this expansion to the bailout. But you know what? It clearly will not be enough. It won't be enough money. It won't be enough power. So we'll be on to the next thing where Europe is sort of behind the ball and waiting for Slovakia and Malta and Estonia and everybody else to approve it. I mean, the only way out of this ultimately is you break up the euro fund or you create much more central authority. And either of those options would be incredibly painful and difficult. But there doesn't seem to be an alternative. Wow. Thank you, Jacob. Sure. All right. On to today's podcast. So Daniel Jurgen is the dean of energy analysis, I think you can say, something portentous like that. He, he's the head of the Cambridge Energy Research Associates. He's 
the voice on global energy policy. You know, the the Saudis and Iran and, you know, the, the White House and, and everyone who cares about energy policy, ExxonMobil, they're all waiting to hear what Daniel Juergen says. And, and most of his time is really micro details on the exact movement of energy around the world. But around once a decade, he redefines the fundamental way people look at energy. In 1992, he won the Pulitzer Prize for his book, The Prize, which is the definitive history of oil. And it's about the big power battles that defined the 20th century, how big world leaders fought over oil. So his new book is called The Quest. It's equally well-written, equally delightful, equally sweeping. And I got to say, for Planet Money people, and I'm guessing a bunch of our listeners, it's probably more to our hearts because it's sort of the geeky companion to, you know, the macho world leaders of the prize. The quest is about the nerds, the scientists, the inventors, the people have been tinkering away for a very long time, trying to come up with alternatives to this dominant hydrocarbon oil-based energy system. And Daniel, you're going to I started by talking about the race between gasoline and electric cars that started much, much earlier than I realized. You showed me a great photo of Thomas Edison and, and Henry Ford sitting around a table literally deciding should we should well, cars be electric or see, should See at, yeah. at that time and that's Edison was the most famous American in the world. I mean he was incredibly famous for what he had done, more famous than the presidents. Uh, And uh, there was a dinner in 1896 in a restaurant on Long Island, and uh, Edison was the guest of honor, and there was a young man there who was an engineer who worked for the Detroit Edison Company, and his name was Henry Ford. And he was trying to build this kind of contraption that, you know, a mechanical horse, so to speak. And um, uh, Edison, they told, uh, Edison couldn't hear very well, so they had Ford come and sort of almost shout into his ear. And uh, he explained what he was trying to do. And Edison said, you know, you're right. That hydrocarbon, he called it, that's a good fuel. What he meant was gasoline. And Ford said that this was decisive for him in terms of his determination to you know, finally leave his job and, and actually start making what became the Model T. Uh, Edison then... Uh, decided a few years later that actually cars with all uh, gasoline were too much trouble and really devoted himself to a battery for electric vehicles. In fact, there was electric vehicles called the Edison, but they never took off because by 1910, the race was over. Internal combustion engine, gasoline had won and the electric car was off the uh, track. Now here we are a century later and the race that we thought was over has started again and the electric car is out there uh, as a uh, potential competitor to oil-based transportation. I mean, you showed me a picture of a car. It, it's not a Model T, but it looks like, I mean, it's from yeah. that era where a woman is plugging it in. And yes. It, 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 it seems so anachronistic. Yeah. It seems like it would be from today. Yeah, yeah. exactly, because right next to it is a photograph in almost exactly the same posture of this CEO of Nissan Renault uh, plugging in a leaf. And it's like, you know, it's like a, a time warp. I mean, it's a lovely thought to think like what this one conversation um, could have changed uh, all of world history and eliminated global warming before it even began. But back then and today, there's something that gasoline has, its energy density, that's it was probably going to win out over well, the battery, right? No matter yeah. what Henry Ford and Thomas Edison yeah, decided. I, yeah, I think at the time that the, the energy density, you didn't have to, the energy density was there to already. The battery would need a you know, lots and lots of improvement, and it still needs lots of uh, improvement uh, to really get large-scale commercial uh, 
adaption. And if Henry Ford, maybe somebody else would have figured out how to drive down the costs and move towards mass production. What's a realistic thing to expect? So so right now, hydrocarbons are, is it 95 About about 80% of our total energy. Oh, that's it? 80%? Yeah, but then there's nuclear and then, you know, then there's renewables. Renewables, if you look at our energy in the late 70s and today, renewables are actually about the same percentage of our total energy. Wow, as they were then. I mean, they've grown, but so has... Um, gas right. and oil. And, yeah. right. right. So it's about 80%. And then how much is nuclear? Well, nuclear in the United States is about 20% of our electricity. Uh, um, in Germany, it's 20%. In France, it's 80%. Right. And, and nuclear is really not a technological challenge. It's a political challenge, fundamental, or a safety challenge. Yes. And, and of course, nuclear, the plants that were built in the 60s are not the same plants that would be built today. You know, so... So there's still innovation, and a lot of the innovation is focused on safety so that you have so-called passive safety features so what happened at Fukushima wouldn't happen in a new nuclear power plant. Right. And and, and that – I sort of want to table nuclear because nuclear could actually solve a lot of these problems well, but might raise other right, problems. Right. It is. Like. I mean – but it's interesting. After the nuclear accident at Fukushima in Japan, you saw different – reactions by different governments. Chancellor Merkel, leader of Germany, said we're shutting it down by 2022. The French said we're being committed to it. It's interesting. The Obama administration said that we continue to regard nuclear as an important component because it is currently the only large-scale commercial carbon-free source of electricity. Gotcha. So, so um, of the other major renewables, which would be wind, solar, and biofuels, right? those are the three major... What's a realistic expectation? What's a reasonable range for how much they could grow in the next 20 years? Wind uh, could have continued to have substantial growth, particularly if it's demonstrated that offshore wind works in, uh, in a large scale. The problem is not having a technology. The problem is having something that works at large scale and it's competitive. And I think the Europeans are now going to test that proposition in the um, in the uh, in the years ahead because that's where they're making a very significant commitment. So we'll know in three or four or five years uh, about that. And what you know could that go to forty percent of U.S. electricity, or is that crazy? In well, I think years? I think it, it. I mean, there's an ambitious goal that of getting to about twenty percent of our electricity from wind. Wind does in have, twenty years. Yeah, that's an ambitious goal. Wind does have a problem that it's intermittent. You can't, it, the wind doesn't blow all the time, so you need something else. And for instance, natural gas is often sort of the, the partner of, of wind and solar. I think solar, you know, may be the ultimate destination of where we go, but it's still a question of bringing down the cost and making it competitive again on a large scale. Biofuels went through a big boom, of, you know, around 2006, 2007. But I think what we found, we're kind of reached the limit for conventional ethanol in our motor fleet on an energy basis. It's about 6%, so it's a big number. Right. And and there's a big debate about at least some biofuels, certainly corn ethanol, that they might actually be net negative or net neutral. They might, yeah. they might take as much energy it's to... It's an incredibly <laughs> vigorous argument uh, about that. And what people are waiting for is the second-generation biofuels where you don't necessarily use food crops. You're not competing with what you're going to do with corn and so forth. And again, breakthroughs are possible. It may be tomorrow or maybe down the road. Uh, but I think people have found that it is tougher than they thought. Let's go back to, to solar. 
I remember 10 years ago, I think it was you, but I'm not sure, said um, once oil gets to $30 a barrel and stays above there, then solar is really competitive. No, that was not me. That wouldn't have been you? Okay. No. All right. <laughs> uh, partly because solar and oil really don't compete with each other. Solar competes with coal and natural gas and wind because that's in the electric power sector, and oil is over here in the automobile sector. Right. So it doesn't a, make sense. Yeah. Right, right, right. But, so, but I think it is true that high conventional energy prices are generally helpful to renewables because it makes people keener about them. Why did the first wave of uh, renewables enter the valley of death? It's because oil prices in the 1980s, instead of going through the roof as was predicted, collapsed. And so they just didn't, you know, kind of said, what's the point? Right. Everyone thought they were going to be driving yeah. tiny little Japanese cars and they all bought big SUVs because who cares? Yeah. yeah. And the, I have a, a great section in the book. I went back and said, you know, where did the SUV come from and, you know, how it was invented? And it, it actually saved Chrysler. And it was, you know, they said Chrysler was the most profitable automobile company in the country. Right. At Not the time. permanently saved. Yeah, but. Yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> right. uh, but we, if, if we get a a reasonably large hybrid or electric auto fleet, then the battle between um, oil and renewables is, is more direct, right? Because you, you are competing kilowatt hours versus well, dollar that's per right. barrel. That's right. If you get to the point where some significant part of our automobile fleet, and it, and again, we're, we're then we're talking significant part, we're talking 2030 or beyond, because uh, when we do our numbers, even the most uh, optimistic case, it's hard to see more than 3% of the vehicles being electric by 2020. But let's say we get out there, then you have a different competitive uh, landscape. Uh, I think it also changes the psychology about oil because you have an alternative to uh, oil in the transportation fleet. Right. And is 3%? I mean, I live in Brooklyn in Park Slope and I work in public radio. So as far as I'm concerned, all anyone wants is an electric car or a hybrid vehicle. Right. So I'm surprised to hear the 3% number in, well, in 10 be, years. Well, because it just takes time for the fleet. You know, uh, only... Uh, right. The seven, average age of a car is 10 years yeah, now. Yeah, 7 or 8% of the fleet turns over every year or maybe even less now. So, so if everybody bought electric cars, you're still yeah, talking about... Something. I'm saying this is how it looks today. Five years from now, it it can look different. And we know that technologies can come and change, but it's just based upon what we know today and what we can see out there today and the lead time and the scale. So we could sell, you know, start selling a lot of electric cars. We're still in the sort of early stages. But it, it will take several years to start seeing their effect. By 2030, we could have a lot more electric cars. Okay. So, so I want to stick with 20 years ahead. So, so, and I want to see if I'm following where we are. So it's, it's, it's 2030, let's say, and um, our economy and the world economy is twice as big as it is now. We're generally feeling more prosperous. We have whatever's 20 years cooler than the iPod and, you know, right. whatever. Unemployment's down to 5%. Let's hope. Yeah. 4.5%. <laughs> right. Um, having just got there the year before. Right. And uh, as a country, we're producing, we're using about the same amount of energy because we've doubled our energy efficiency. And that would be a huge achievement. Which would be a huge achievement, yes. That we're not, I, I want to live in the ambitious, hopeful right. universe of 2030. Okay. So now hydrocarbons are they're in 2011. They're, they're um, 80%. I mean, what would be an ambitious, hopeful goal? Would they be 70%, 60%? I mean, in our kind of planning scenario, we use it 
it's about 75%, and that seems to be, uh, you know, you see those kind of numbers in other analyses. Some people have it much lower, and they have plans for making it much lower. It's just hard to see how you get there quickly and and how you tell the Chinese that you want them to change their energy system quickly. So, so 2030, um, 75%, that sounds kind of depressing to me. I mean, that, that in 20 years, a hopeful, ambitious is to just have five percentage points less of our energy come yeah. from hydrocarbons. I mean, that, as I say, it's a kind of scenario based upon what we know today. What's always possible, and I'm so aware of it in writing this book, that, of course, things can change, that you know, there's a consensus and everybody sort of sees things the same way, and then something happens that completely changes the picture. If there's a lot more progress in bringing down the costs of uh, renewables, then their segment can be greater. And with greater efficiency, you know, the hydrocarbon share can, can be down. So there's some brilliant 23-year-old in Caltech who could upend all of this. Well, I think there there is. And I think one of the things to me that's really uh, hopeful as I see on all these campuses like MIT and others is that five years ago, energy wasn't a topic. Now it's a very big topic, and it's really engaged the, the both the commitment and the imagination of young scientists. And... Uh, you know, this book, The Quest, More Than the Prize, is a lot more about scientists, about people who, you know, and the power of scientific creativity. And so, Right. The prize was about, I want to say, manly men. It was about yeah. world leaders and tough oil uh, entrepreneurs. Right. It, and it, was that, an yeah. it, was, it was more of an adventure story, I guess. Yeah. And this is one. Uh, it's a different kind of adventure. Uh, but, a geekier adventure, yeah, a, which yeah. is what Planet Money is all about, geeky and, adventures. Yeah, and, you know... Let's face it. You know, geeks are heroes today. The, you know, who, who who's who's the big man on campus? It's the geek. Right, right, and it, geeks will save us. Yes, right, yes, <laughs> geeks will rule. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we hope. All right, but still, an ambitious goal is twenty years from now. Really, I got to say, minor improvements in the. In yeah, the... I think what's. I mean, we have new entrants into the energy field, which are the venture capitalists, and they came in. You know, because they said. You know, look what we've done in information technology. Look what we've done in, you know, look at Google, look at Facebook, look at Apple, look at uh, Genetech, all these companies. We can do the same in energy. I think they've found so far that it's harder, that it's more capital intensive, that it takes longer, it's more complex, involves more regulation. So it just doesn't happen as fast. So I think the seeds are all planted for change. And if we maintain a consistent pattern, we'll see it. Maybe it'll happen before 2030. But I think it's, it's you can be optimistic, but it's, I think what we, what we need is a marriage of optimism and realism. Right. So um, there are people who, you know, want want President Obama to have a you know, man to the moon kind of plan. And, you know, ten in 10 years, we will get, you know, hydrocarbons down to 50%, that kind of thing. Is that, I mean, if we had a 1960s style, just flooding the zone? Of- you know, we were, we were with the man in the moon or the Manhattan Project, you know, the Manhattan Project was trying to produ- produce two bombs. That's what it was, it was trying to do. Uh, the man in the moon was trying to get a couple of men on the moon. It wasn't trying to kind of change the foundations of of the of our that underpin our economy. So I, I don't think a man on the moon program or uh, uh, or a Manhattan Project or Marshall Plan is 
quite the right way to go about it. What we need is constant, consistent spending on energy R&D as we need it in other parts of our economy. I headed a task force on energy R&D in the Clinton administration days, and you just see this volatility of the spending, and that's very bad for young people who want to pursue careers answering questions. So I think we need a higher level and a consistent level, and I think that is probably among the most important things that the government can do and not try and, you know, uh, t- to mobilize the whole economy, uh, that would be a very tough order. And, I, and if you look at our politics today... It's oh, it's not, definitely not happening. It's, it's, right. it's not going to happen. Right. I mean, the whole issue now, I mean, in our country and other countries are going to be do- dominated about cutting budgets and fiscal solvency. So I would say what really needs to be preserved is this commitment to the future, which is what research and development is all about and in the energy sector. Can't we have a law that if you're really, really smart, you can't work on Wall Street? You you move to right. the energy yes, yes, sector. Yes, yeah. oh, bring all those physicists back. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> right, right. All right. So, so um, we've talked a fair bit on the sort of game theoretic issues with global climate change. That uh, you know, there's there's massive free rider problems. You know, it's it, it's great for the U.S. if everyone else does you know uh, does climate change appropriate stuff, and then we just feel the benefits. Is there a path to sort of global coherence on on energy policy or is it just China's self-interest and hopefully India's self-interest and maybe Brazil's will sort of drag the rest of the world? I think there, you know, you can see the Chinese attitude. You know, one of the things I write about is around 2007, 2008, the Chinese started to have a quite a different tone about climate change. And uh I was at a conference uh, in June where I heard the president of China uh, speak, and he said that there you know, are three major issues facing the world. He says energy, food, and climate change. And you wouldn't have heard a Chinese president say that five years ago, even the, the same Chinese president who's president now. So I think uh, that's a change. And a lot of things that we do that we don't call climate change policies have that impact. Doubling the fuel efficiency of automobiles is, among other things, it's not only about efficiency uh, and reducing imported oil and so forth. It's also, uh, it's, a, it's a, in effect, a de facto climate change policy, renewable portfolio standards, de facto climate change policy. Just last question. 2040, 2050, 2090? I mean, oh, forecasts I, 20 years yeah. are tough enough. Forecasts three months are tough enough. Yes. Yeah. Yes. You don't even go there? Yeah. No. <laughs> All I would say, I think by 2040 or 2050, our energy system will probably look quite different than it does today. I mean, because then you'll have seen the impact of, of time. Uh, 20 years ahead in energy, given the long lead times, is actually a pretty short period of time. The elements of change are there. Indeed, all these wonderful geeks who are really, you know, obsessed with energy, but it just takes time for the impact to be there. So what I hope with the book is that it it is, as I say, it's both optimistic. It's about innovation and change, but at the same time realistic. And you can see how these pieces all fit together and make your own assessments about where you think uh, the, the action and the change will come. But one thing we do know, the change will come. Whoa, 
please let us know what other books we should be reading, what other authors we should be talking to. You can let us know on our blog, npr.org slash money. You can also find us on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can email us at planetmoney at npr.org. I'm Jacob Goldstein. And I'm Adam Davidson. Thank you for listening. Don't give up your in-